0: So I'm pretty excited this morning uh, to be able to start a new sermon series, as you know, called Characteristics of a Thriving Church. I'm also thankful for our promo team that continues to work uh, with me and developing a a graphic uh, for our series. This series will probably last for another nine or ten weeks. Uh, More if I continue to do what I'm going to do this morning. I had written um, a three-point sermon and I decided that I'm only going to preach the first point because you'd be here for another hour and a half with me. So, um, this may extend the sermon series, but we really have all summer uh, to walk through this a series on characteristics of a thriving church. And I want to just give you a bit of context to why I've chosen this series title, and this is going to be unashamedly a topical sermon series. I'm going to be walking through a lot of scripture over this uh, season, in particular from the book of Acts. But wh- why this series? Well, in just a few weeks, our Mother Church, which is Blessings Christian Church in West Hamilton, is going to go to what we call a classes, which is a meeting of uh, representatives from various churches in southern southwestern Ontario, or Ontario, we we'll just say. And um, they're going to ask permission for us to become an independent church. You're like, we're not independent? No, we're not. Um, we're still becoming independent. We're, we're still leaving the nest, you could say. Um, with this independence comes our own budget, responsibility for our own budget. With this independence comes the responsibility of all spiritual care, without kind of the mother helping us on that. We have to care for our congregation. With this independence becomes a responsibility to the, the broader federation of churches. And, and with this you know independence, we get to get our own charitable number. That should be fun. And so I thought, you know, in order to prepare us for this season of preparing for kind of this independence that will become ours, we want to be a church that's thriving. You might say, well, Pastor Ian, um, it might have been better in our cultural moment to ask to preach on a, on a series like this, um, characteristics of a surviving church. They said in 2019, a survey was done that Um, 9,000 churches will be closing over the next 10 years in Canada. Congregations folding, churches closing their doors because being a Christian in Canada doesn't seem to be the popular thing anymore and churches are closing. It 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 might be more fitting then to say, well, why don't we have a series on just a church that survives this onslaught? And I thought about that. And I pray that God will allow our church to survive in this, in this time, this post-Christian era that we live in. I, I'm praying about that. But I chose thriving for a reason because I firmly believe, and I hope you have the same faith with me, that Jesus does not just want his church to survive. Jesus really actually wants his church to thrive, to continue to grow, to develop, to mature. To become something even more beautiful than she is right now in this local church environment, which we call Mercy Church. He wants us to thrive. And in order to help us to say, well, you know, is our church thriving? Are we growing as members? And are we developing and maturing? And, and is it becoming something beautiful for Christ? I have a bit of a metric, a way to kind of measure our life and the church's life against this med- metric. It's a very simple metric. I'm going to ask three questions throughout the series of sermons that I'm going to preach against this metric or against this sermon title. And the first one is this, are we going? So what does that mean? Are we using our spiritual gifts that God has given us for the sake of the other? We all have spiritual gifts. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been given spiritual gifts, not just for you to hold on to, but to give to others in this community, in this fellowship of believers, but also in our broader community. In particular, McQuesten, where God has called us as a church, are we going? That's one of the metrics I'm going to. We're going to compare our church, our our personal life, and our church life against that question: Are we growing? Are we going? Here's the next one: Are we growing? (laughs) Are we growing? Are we as a congregation growing in our faith and in our affection for Christ? Are we being discipled and are we able to disciple others so that they are also growing in their knowledge of Scripture, in their, in their relationship with Christ? Are we growing spiritually? That will be my next question. Here's my third Are we giving? Are we giving? Have we caught hold of the vision for what it means to be a church locally positioned and are we supporting this this work, this cause of the gospel here at Mercy Church through our generous giving, through our generous support, our resources, are we giving? So three simple questions. Are we going? Are we growing? And are we giving? This will help us understand whether we actually are a thriving church or not. Now, a thriving church, you understand, is not a perfect church. We are a church, you could say, militant. We are still fighting this battle against sin. But it should be marked by growing. It should be marked by going. And it should be marked by giving. All of that infused by the, go- by the grace of God for the glory of God. The growing, the going, and the giving. And today... In particular, we're going to look at one area, hopefully, of growth, which will be our prayer life, devoted to prayer. And what I've done today, um, after removing two of my points, (laughs) what I've done today is walk, um, open the book, I will open, open the book of Acts, what I did in the preparation of this series, is open the book of Acts and, and, and ask the question against the early church, were they devoted to prayer? And if they were devoted to prayer, what did that look like? And what can we glean from their devotion to prayer for our own season of prayer and time of prayer and growth in prayer? So what can we learn from the book of Acts? And in fact, Acts speaks more about prayer than all the other Gospels. I think almost combined, interestingly. Maybe because, as was posted on our social media, because they had direct access to Jesus, they didn't have to pray as much. They could just ask them. Forty-eight times in the book of Acts, we read they prayed. Forty-eight times. In some ways, you could say the book of Acts is a prayer journal—prayers that were made and prayers that were answered in awesome ways. The church of Acts, Acts survived. I mean, thrived. Not because it was perfect, not at all. But it thrived because they were a spirit-filled people on their knees. I'm going to say that again. The reason why we see so much growth in in Acts and the church growing in the way that it did is because they were a spirit-filled people on their knees. And if we want to see growth, not numerical growth per se, but also numerical growth, if we want to see a church that's giving generously, if we want to see a church that's growing spiritually, it will be a church that is on its knees, filled by God's Spirit, ready to serve. So let's do this. Let's, let's walk through a few uh, passages, um, kind of a survey, you could say. I could have picked many, many more. I always have to stop myself. As you could be here forever, but let's just pick a few passages from the book of Acts where there's a connection between a prayer and God answering prayer and being devoted to prayer. So we'll begin with Acts chapter 1 verse 12. This is before uh, Pentecost, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but after Jesus ascended. This is what we read in chapter 1 verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, not Judas Iscariot. Here it comes, verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, or other translations, they were devoted to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, and this is the first time, actually, that we see a connection between Jesus, uh, the disciples and the brothers of Jesus, and we will learn later that b- two of those brothers wrote letters if, in the New Testament. That's Acts 1. Acts 2. This is now Pentecost, has happened, the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. This is what we read again, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let's continue. You can find this in every chapter, but I'm just picking some here. First, chapter 4, verse 23. This is after Peter and John were were held up in in the courthouse of the Pharisees, you could say, or the Sanhedrin, telling them not to preach anymore. This is what happened. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, uh, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Next passage. This is when now Peter was held up in prison and released from, by an angel. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. This was a prayer meeting for the release of Peter. Peter. Finally, now in the church of Antioch, this is a few chapters later, in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, also called Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Here it comes. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them And sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. So, the characteristics of a thriving church devoted to prayer. Oh, let's pray first. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you that we can now open your word. And by your Holy Spirit, you can plant this word deeper into our hearts. And the call of the gospel, that call to be in constant conversation with you, may be appropriated and realized in each one of our hearts, so that we, it can be said of Mercy Christian Church, that we are indeed a people of prayer. Lord, hear this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Characteristics of a thriving church devoted to prayer. I have three things that I was going to preach on this morning. I'm only going to preach on the first one, the reasons for prayer. That's what we're going to tackle today. Next week, if you stay tuned, we're going to look at hindrances to prayer and fostering a culture of prayer. So the reasons for prayer, hindrances to prayer, and the fostering a culture of prayer. Just looking at those points, you're like, of course you'd take a few sermons on those. There's a lot there. Yes, of course. There are at least two parts to a healthy prayer life. The first part to a healthy prayer life is your personal prayer life with the Lord. Your secret prayers. Your prayers on the move. In your heart. That's part of a healthy prayer life. That that needs to be an active part of your life. A very, very active part of your life. The second part of a healthy prayer life is what we call corporate prayer. Prayer that happens at, around the dinner table, you could say, if you've been blessed with a family. But also prayer that happens with the members of the local church that you're part of. Not just on Sunday as you pray with me, but also throughout the week at various encounters where you're invited to pray, that you take those opportunities to pray corporately. And you have to understand that in order to have a healthy corporate prayer life, you have to actually have a very healthy personal prayer life. If there's no personal prayer life, if you're not walking with the Lord in prayer personally, it gets very, very hard to pray, hip, uh, pray corporately. And if you do, you're just being a good old hypocrite. Because you have no prayer life, you just want to show off now. So a healthy prayer life puts those two in tandem. But I want to focus on the reasons for prayer corporately the reasons why we have to gather for prayer to pray together as a church in order for this church to be a thriving congregation of our lord jesus christ and again i have four reasons for prayer and there that was a list of about eight so you know just be thankful that i'm just narrowing things down for you here one we are utterly dependent upon god's mercy that's why we need to pray together We are utterly dependent upon God's mercy. Here's number two. We delight to honor God's purposes. We pray together because together we delight to honor God's purposes. We are in need of particular help. And we long for the gospel to take root, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. And so we need to pray about that because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The reasons for prayer, number one, we are utterly dependent on God's mercy, really to reach his vision for his church. So what? God has is a vision for his church, and we need to understand that we need his mercy to help us understand that and be part of that. When I started to plot out this series, I was going to start with preaching as my first sermon. And some of you might be asking, why didn't you start with preaching? A thriving church. Is a church that preaches the full counsel of God. A thriving church understands that preaching is a means of grace, a means of of communicating the gospel so that people's hearts are changed. And I get that. That's going to have to be three weeks now. It's going to be next week, but it's going to have to be three weeks away. It's going to happen. But I believe firmly that actually prayer fuels the preaching of the gospel. It's prayer that invites the Holy Spirit to do an awesome work of grace through the preaching. It's prayer that prepares our hearts to receive the gospel that is preached. It's prayer that I depend on with increasing measure, I've realized, even as I've been preaching the gospel more and more throughout the years, that with increasing measure, I need the prayers of God's people to pray that this message gets communicated well. There's a lot of things that distract. I usually begin my week something like this. Oh, Lord, I got nothing. (laughs) Let your spirit work in me and through me. Open my eyes to the beauty of your word. Guard my heart from distractions from anything that clouds the true meaning of the passage. Keep me in the path of holiness. Keep me attentive to the needs of the congregation. Keep fueling my burning passion for the lost. Let the cross be clearly proclaimed so that hearts will bend under the power of your grace and forgiveness. That's all kind of part of the prayer that I have before I start writing. I'm thankful that I hear regularly that there are members of this church praying for the proclamation of the word, and I'm just going to invite you to continue to do that. Please. We begin with prayer. Why? Because we have utter and utter dependence upon God's mercy when it comes to His gospel. Utter dependence. Now, let's see this worked out with the disciples. The disciples, you understand at this point in history, are a hurting bunch of guys, you could say, and girls. They just said goodbye to their Savior. They were still looking up in heaven, and, and, and the angels had to say, okay, stop looking. What did they do? They said goodbye. Their hearts were heavy. And they made a beeline to Jerusalem, to that room that they've been in for a little while now. And the first thing they did was start a prayer meeting. I love that. The reason why they started a prayer meeting, it seems on the day that Jesus ascended even, because they understood that the future of Christ's mission on earth He had just commissioned them, you understand, to bring that gospel to the nations, to disciple the nations, to go out from Judah to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Antioch to the ends of the world. He had just laid that on their hearts. They understood, as we should understand, that for that mission to be fulfilled through them, they were powerless without prayer. For that mission, to bring that gospel to the nations, they were powerless without prayer. So what did they do? They prayed. I like this quote from Spurgeon. He says this. He says, whenever God determines to do a great work, he first sets his people to pray. And all God's people say, amen. So we read in verse 1, verse 14, they devoted, they were constant in prayer, but really, a better translation is this, that they were devoted to prayer. And the idea of being devoted is to continue steadfastly with someone or something. To be devoted to your wife, to your spouse, or to your husband, or whatever, is to be constant, steadfast with that person. To remain faithful in doing something. That's what devoted means. And the reason I like the word devoted over constant is because devoted has this relationship idea. And I think that's important. That their prayer is not just simply a a kind of an esoteric kind of event or something that they that they just do. They just kind of, it's 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 very clerical, they just kind of talk to God and God, you know, responds. No, no, it's a relationship. They're devoted to Christ because they want this relationship to continue, that they're, they're one with Christ. And one way to communicate or be one with Christ is to continue talking to Him through prayer. So they were devoted to each other to God in prayer. They were also united in this dependency on God's mercy. They were united in this one common reality that they needed God's help. They loved him. they missed their Savior. They were devoted to prayer together. They were dependent upon God's mercy. But here, number two, they they wanted to delight and honor God's purposes as well. We see that as as we walk through the book of Acts, that not only were they completely dependent upon God's mercy, they wanted to honor God's purposes. They were here as Christ's ambassadors. They wanted to serve the king of kings. They wanted to honor his purposes. You know, so what happened was after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit was poured down upon the church, um, they, they, these, these disciples turned apostles became powerful, bold proclaimers of the gospel. And not everybody liked that. In fact, those who hated Jesus began to hate the disciples pretty quickly after Jesus ascended. And the Holy Spirit came down. And so they arrested Peter and John. They seem to be the key players at this moment. And they arrested them and they interrogated them. They asked them lots of questions. Why are you doing this? Who are you? But after further threats, they let them go. So they threatened them because they didn't want to hear a particular message again. And that message is from Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Which reads as follows, Acts chapter 4 verse 12, salvation is, f- salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. They did not want to hear that again. Peter and John made it very clear that that was God's purpose. To share this message that salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But here's the question. What did they do after they went back to the congregation of believers? After they were interrogated? After they were threatened? And this threat would become very, very severe in the few weeks that would follow to the loss of James actually. This is what they did, verse 24. They raised their voices together in prayer. You see, the default position we're beginning to understand in the early church, in times of stress, in times of need, but also in times of joy, is prayer. That was their go-to. That was their default a priori position in their walk with Christ. That as a people of God, their first response was, okay, let's pray about this. And that's exactly what they did. And when they prayed, they exalted God's purposes. They they, they, they quoted scripture. They went back to Psalm 2. They they allowed that to be unfolded before them. Why did the nations rage against the Holy One? They they, they poured upon that scripture. And then what happens is something beautiful. As they prayed, they didn't complain. As they prayed, they didn't say, God, please protect us from harm. Hide us. Send us a ship like Jonah asked for and bring us to Tarshish. No. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. That's fair. And what follows is amazing. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Consider their threats. They're really nothing. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. But you have to allow us to continue to preach with great boldness. We're not scared for our lives. All we want to see is Jesus Christ proclaimed. So give us the boldness to do that. This is your purpose. We want to fulfill your purpose. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And God's response to that prayer was an earthquake. He shook the house. They became unshakable in the confidence of God's promises even as God shook the very foundation of their home. What God was doing, he was showing his presence with them. He was being honored by that prayer. He wanted them to know that he was with them. He's done this before in the history of the church. He's done this in the time of Moses. He showed his presence to his people. I'm with you. He wanted them to know that that prayer is exactly what he wanted them to do. Not be afraid. Not run away. But in the face of those threats, to preach the gospel boldly. We're learning lots here from the early church. Here's the next one. The next reason we need to pray is because we need particular help even if it seems impossible. From a human perspective, if something seems impossible, it's a good time to pray. (laughs) The early church knew that Jesus hears prayers. They knew that the Father hears prayers. They heard Jesus pray. They heard responses from the Father. They knew that this was not a vain enterprise. They understood that when they prayed, God would listen. In fact, I like what Keller says about this, and I think this is true, Though we struggle with this because sometimes we feel that heaven is hermetically sealed from our prayers, but it's not. This is what Keller says in a quote. He says, there is no unanswered prayer. There might be unanswered phone calls, but there is no unanswered prayer. He hears the desires of your your heart and responds to your needs in ways beyond your wisdom. He's not not listening. He's responding in ways beyond your wisdom. The disciples had to learn this truth. I'm sure that the disciples or the apostles prayed for James, the brother of John, when he was arrested by Herod. But James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod. You have a response that, to that. One response is to say, well, we prayed for James. God did not answer the way we wanted him to answer, so we will stop praying. Or you can say, we prayed for James, and God's will was done. He was promoted to glory, what we think is before his time, but the gospel needs to continue. And so Peter gets in prison. And what does the church do? It has a prayer meeting. Of course. When there's need for particular help from God, it's good to gather corporately for prayer. So they prayed. And they prayed for the impossible. Herod really wanted Peter dead. He was getting gaining some credit with the, the leadership after James had died, so he's like... We're going to make sure that no one takes Peter. So he put four squads of four soldiers to guard him. That's a lot of guys for one guy without a weapon. Sixteen men, and he's chained. And what did the church do? They prayed for the impossible. And the impossible happened. Chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly pouring out their hearts in prayer to God, and the impossible happened. He was released. What did they do after that? Did they hide Peter? No, Peter left Jerusalem at that time, but he was still on the same old mission to preach the gospel. Here, we're going to close with this. We long for the gospel to take root in others. We're dependent upon his mercy. We want to see God's purposes fulfilled. We pray because we are in desperate need of particular help at different times, but we also want to see the gospel take root in the hearts of others, and that is a matter for prayer. The church of Antioch got it. They knew that the nations beyond Antioch had not heard of Jesus Christ. Their hearts were bent Under that pressure, they desired to see the gospel go out. So what did they do? Verse 2 of chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's like an answer to prayer. We're waiting, Lord, for you to burden our hearts to send out guys into the field. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them out. The other reason why we join together for corporate prayer, whatever that time is, is because of the lost. I hope you understand. God help us if we're not praying for the lost. God help us. Because that's Christ's mission. And we're going to participate in Christ's mission. Christ has a heart for the lost. His people better have a heart for the lost. A heart that burns with the love of Jesus wants to see others experience that love. A person who knows he or she is forgiven wants to others to know that there is forgiveness available to them. A person who understands Christ's mission to disciple the nations wants to partner in that mission. And all of that is dependent upon prayer. All of that. The early church just didn't send out men willy-nilly No, they sent out men after prayer and fasting. They wanted to be spirit-led, not flesh-led, in their call. A church of Jesus Christ that is flesh-led will grow numerically, will have all the bells and whistles, but there will be no spiritual growth, ultimately. We need, as a church of Jesus Christ, to be spirit-filled. Because when it's spirit-filled, it's of Christ and we will get to see the benefits of it. And that gospel took root throughout Asia Minor, all the way to Rome. We'll see, time has lapsed between us and the early church some 2,000 years. But I want to ask you this morning as we close off has anything really changed? Has anything really changed between the early church and their devotion to prayer and us in 2022, planted here in McQueston community in a church called Mercy? H- has anything really changed? They remain utterly dependent upon God's mercy to see His vision fulfilled in their day, do we? They delighted to honor God's purposes even in the face of hardship. Do we? We may not expect the same hardship as they did, but we can expect resistance to this gospel that we're sharing. We can expect doors to shut, but the same prayer should be our prayer. Enable your servants to keep on sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with great boldness. That's delighting in God's purpose. They needed particular help, even when it seemed impossible. Do we? Yeah? I'll give you one thing that we're praying for right now, and I want you to pray with me on this. We need a place to land, (laughs) a place that we can call our home. And we are in conversation with the people upstairs that maybe by God's grace he will make this our home, this building. That needs a lot of prayer. And if that door shuts because God has a better door for us, we need to ask God to open that better door for us. But it needs a lot of prayer. It needs your prayer. Because right now, it seems impossible. We felt right from the very beginning, if you're not, if you're not new with mercy, you, you should join in this on this knowledge, that from the very beginning, we felt the Lord called us to this part of the city. In fact, he, he called us to McQueston. That's why I encourage people to move in, to get really invited here, to get busy here. It's because God laid this on our hearts. All 20 of us who were in prayer asking God to show us where he wanted us to land in Hamilton. And he called us to McQueston. I don't think he wants us to leave now. But now we have the impossibility of trying to find a building in a limited area with limited buildings available to us. We need your prayers. God can do the impossible, and the church of Jesus Christ continues to need him to help us with the impossible. Finally, they long for the gospel to take root in others. And so the question comes to us, do we? Do we share that same longing with the early church? I struggle. I'm easily distracted. That's why I was going to move into my second point of all the hindrances to prayer. But we should expend, loved ones, no less effort that God does the same kind of work in our community. And we begin right here in McQueston, because again, God's called us here and we pray for the souls of this community. We pray for the souls in Oriel Crescent who need to know Jesus as we run a program there. We pray for the souls who come to our Spanish evening on Friday, ni- uh, Friday nights. We pray for the souls that indwell that we're ministering to through particular ways. We pray for the souls that come to m- moms and tots. We pray for the souls that we, we, we talk to, we reach as we do our prayer walks. Whatever the case may be, we are praying for the souls of this community that they may know Jesus as their Lord, that it will take root in their hearts. We got to do that together. We've got to be joined in this vision. We pray for Christianity Exploring. We're thankful for the four, possibly six who are coming out here who are searching to know Jesus. We're praying for these opportunities. And as the gospel moves out of McQuest into our own other communities if we don't live here, and then back into the world at large, we're praying that the gospel will take root. And the promise is, as we put our faith in Christ, like the disciples and the apostles, as we seek his purpose dependent upon his grace, needing his help in particular need, for particular needs, and seeing the gospel rooted in our lives and rooted in other lives, Christ will hear those prayers. We go in confidence. We have a God who listens because Christ is our intercessor. And he will bring those prayers to our Father. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can talk about this matter of being devoted uh, to prayer. And we know, Father, that you want your congregation to be a congregation devoted to prayer. You invite us into that space constantly. Personally, Father, we need to be a people devoted to personal prayer calling upon your name, praying, interceding for others, asking you, Lord, to hear our prayers and to answer and to shake our houses, as it were, showing your presence to us. But also corporately, Father, we need to be a people of prayer. And so, Father, all those opportunities that we'll get to talk about next week that we have even in this church to gather together for prayer, that we will seize them. And that you'll be glorified as we are a people filled by your spirit on our knees. Hear our prayers we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.